0: Here we are now with another episode of the Andrew Lake podcast. My name is Dosta, and today I'd like to talk about David Foster Wallace. This man is one of the most spectacular failures. And we have to look at the people who have failed to see how they failed so that we can learn for ourselves. And perhaps more than anyone, David Foster Wallace was spectacular, magnificent, glorious in how he failed. And it really is quite peculiar that someone of so much, I want to say talent, but he really goes beyond talent. He really goes more towards genius. And how could someone of such genius be the way that he was, have what he had, see the world? as he saw it. And how could it end in such a tragedy as it did? How did David Foster Wallace die? What killed him? Of course, on the surface, you say, well, he killed himself. But anyone who commits suicide, in some ways, still has something that kills them, whether it's an idea, or a belief structure, or a value system, whatever you want to say or call, it's their state of being that kills them. It's how they are that kills them. and david foster wallace could have had one of the most extraordinary inner worlds inner beings that the intellectual world has ever known now he's got a few books and today i'd most likely i'd, I'd most want to spend the majority of our time on his Kenyan graduating class commencement speech so we're going to go through that step by step and that really sums up the man it really has all the ins and outs of his world perspective just in that short speech and he really it really shows how he had the answer Right in front of his nose. He should have got it, but he didn't. He missed it. And it's astonishing. It's terrifying. It's very alarming. I am so moved by how someone can be so brilliant, and yet they miss it. Now, what does it mean in this context? What am I saying? What did he miss? Tell us more about that. Well, for the point of this conversation, it is the glory of existence. The magic of what it means to be alive. And really, one of the best ways to move towards that and to awaken to that is through the narrative, through the story, through the words that we ascribe to the events in the world. And David Foster Wallace was perhaps the most brilliant man of our age at bridging stories and bringing them into words. Bringing things to life, narratives, scenarios, characters, through words. And that is a real art. That is a real rare gem for him to be able to do that. And he really does stand out better than anyone else. But it's alarming. How can someone miss so much with so much skill? There's there's a lesson here. There's a deep lesson here about the intellect, and the ability of the mind, and how far it can go. So one of his most famous books, or his magnus Opum, his crown jewel, is the book called Infinite Jest. Now, it's a massive book. It's a thousand pages more or more long. And it's dense. It's literature. It's not fictional reading. Now, the difference between fiction and literature, well, there's a a lot of different ways, but basically it's a cultural commentary. And it's a cultural expression which is designed to be timeless. Whereas fiction is more narrow in what it says about the time that it was written or when it was set. Literature is cultural but also transcends the culture. So Jane Austen novels are commentaries in their time, narratives in their time, but they've also transcended that time, which is what makes them literature. And also just more Basically, literature takes half a brain to read. So if you want to read literature, you need to have a, a pretty good cognitive ability. Fiction is just more mainstream, and it's more more sp- on the spoon-feeding end of the spectrum. If there's, if there's one, one end over here, we've got the three-course main meal with these fine caviar and, and detailed flavors. And that's one end of the spectrum, which is literature. And then on the other end, we've got the pop vampire romance novels. That's (laughs) spoon-feeding. Well, not anything to say about... Not anything wrong with vampire love novels. I I shouldn't bag them out too much. But that's the spectrum. That's the difference between literature and fiction. An infinite jest. This word jest, what comes to... What comes to my mind when I hear this word jest is the jester. So, in a distant land, in a time long before our own, the king would sit in his court with his advisers, with his queen, with his axemen, with his religious figures, and he'd have this court of people working for him, and one of the people in that court would be the jester, this is the meaning of the word jest. It's to, to give a joke, to keep things light-hearted. The old slapstick humor, to make fun of things. And I'm reminded of a anecdote which fits into this setting, which is that one day the king is looking into the mirror and he's just got himself dressed and he's thinking, oh, I'm so handsome. I'm so wonderful. I'm so pleased with myself. And he's getting a bit narcissistic about his looks. And the jester comes up behind him and pushes him over, and he falls crash bang into the mirror, and it smashes, and he hurts himself, cuts up all over the pieces. And the king is, whoa, 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 what's going on? Huh? He, he comes up, he stands up, and he turns around, and he sees the jester there. And he goes, what are you doing, you idiot? If you can't come up with an answer as to why you did that, which is not as foolish as you are, I will kill you. And the jester says, oh, forgive me, Lord King. I thought you were the queen. And when I think of jesting, I think of guys, a bunch of blokes, some workmen who are feeling light-hearted, now, having a slap on the back, taking the piss, as we say in Australia, or if you're in, if you're English, you say you must be having a fucking laugh. You're having a laugh, are you? I can imagine. That phrase is in a lot of movies. There's a lot of English movies where they're saying they're having a laugh. And you can imagine what it's like for guys to be sitting around just, oh, joke on this, and then bang, there's another joke after that. And they're all rolling together and they're all fun. They're jesting. It's this jest, this kick. Now, when it comes to infinite jest... When I think of that, it becomes a nightmare. When I think of this constant joking, this constant saying that nothing is serious. And that's really what Infinite Jest, this book by David Foster Wallace, is. It's a nightmare. And that's why I'd rather call it, it's more like Infinite Frustration, It's this want to have a joke, to find some spark, this playfulness. And yet it all goes wrong. It never quite gets there. Pushing, trying. Now, I must admit, I haven't read all of this book. I couldn't get the way through it. Maybe I haven't got enough of an attention span. Maybe I'm not literate enough. Maybe I'm not smart enough to read real literature. But it was the tone. When I read this book, I feel it's like the tone of David Foster Wallace's voice. It's the tone. There's this drain. There's this background uh, to it. It's not a a jest as in a pick-me-up. And it's so dazzling with its words. It's so dazzling with how... Amazing. It brings things to life. It draws you in. And, and I, I was reading along, I was following along, and I was saying to myself, how, how do I understand what's going on? I want to know what's going on. Is this really what's happening? Where are we in the scenario? What is happening with this character? And oftentimes I'd follow it and not exactly know what's going on, but the feeling, it would draw me into the world deeper than just a checklist of ABC plot narrative characters scenario. And there's a passage in Infinite Jest where he's describing this person who is depressed and they're in hospital. And they have a chronic case of depression. And the scene is where they're in this hospital bed and the doctor comes in and he's asking questions. He's discussing things. He's trying to understand the patient. He's offering him solutions. He's listening. He's trying to expand the worldview. And somehow you get drawn into this person's world and you see how they're right. They're correct in being depressed. And you really get a sense of it. And that is good literature. That is the brilliance. And also, the other thing about infinite jest is just how many different things there are in, how many situations there are in, the book. And to think that that all came from one man, the whole thing came from one man's head. Well, you just have to sit back and, and say, Whoa, what an amazing intellect. What a brilliant mind. And this makes the tragedy so much more the tragedy that he couldn't, he, he could have so much and yet miss it. To have so, nu- so much and not know how to use it right. Now, when I listen to the commencement speech, the first thing that strikes me is his tone of voice. And I get the sense as I listen to this speech that someone should have tapped him on the shoulder... And said, are you okay? If at least not during the speech, then afterwards. And maybe someone did. Who knows? With the brilliancy of storytelling that David Foster Wallace had, I can see how it might have become a black hole for him. Because consider this. If you can tell a story better than someone else, then that way of expanding the worldview is closed to you. If a parable or a didactic little parable-ish story, as he says, or an illustration, a cliché, is clearer to you in the sense that you can do more mental gymnastics and more complicated analysis than the person who's telling it to you, then there's going to be no effect of the person telling it to you. There is no one in the world who could have sat David Foster Wallace down and said, let me tell you a story. He's already written the best stories. He already knows how to navigate stories. And that is a terrible thing to not understand and to miss out on. If you can't understand a story, if you can't follow a parable, and you can't find a deeper meaning in a story, then that closes a lot of doors for you. That makes a lot of problems for your inner world and your connection with other people and how information and knowledge comes into you. So the tone of voice, his navigating around didactic little parable-ish stories, are two things that I initially notice in this speech. So let's go through it. Strap yourselves in, this speech is called David Foster Wallace's 2005 commencement speech to the graduate class at Kenyon College. And the... uh, Let me find the subtitle, which is Some thoughts delivered on a significant occasion about living a compassionate life. Wow! If that was the title... If that was what, if I knew the title before I heard it, wow! I would have large expectations for this. I would be quite excited. This is a rare opportunity, a unique opportunity for someone to stand up, and a brilliant person to stand up and really flex their worldview—not just their intellect, not just their storytelling ability, not their not their wordsmithness. But this perspective, this is your chance to be accounted as a human being. And he says, these are some thoughts on a significant occasion about living a compassionate life. Wow. I think if I had have known the title, the subtitle before I heard it, I would have been even more sad to hear this speech. So here we go. Quote, greetings parents and congratulations to Kenyon's graduating class of 2005. There are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? This is such a beautiful parable. There are so many ways that this can be brought to life with meaning, with metaphor. What we need to know is right in front of our face. What we need to experience is all around us. And the older fish... He's not trying to be a master or a teacher or a guru. To him, it's just normal, casual talk. And yet, the normality for the older, more experienced, wiser fish is an opening. It's a moment of curiosity starting for the younger fish. And how is that not the most beautiful, poetic way of illustrating this difference between the the wise older people and the young clueless students. How many different ways could this parable be taken? But Wallace says he, he continues straight on to expand the context. By saying, quote, this is a standard requirement of the U.S. commencement speeches, the deployment of didactic little parable-ish stories. The story thing turns out to be one of the better, less bullshitty conventions of the genre, but if you're worried that I plan to present myself here as the wise older fish explaining what water is to you younger fish, please don't be. I am not the wise old fish. The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. As stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude, but the fact is that in the day-to-day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have a life or death importance, or so I wish to suggest to you on this dry and lovely morning, Whoa, I am completely dazzled by how he strings this together. And he's done this one switch, which is the staple value of the postmodern meme, which is to recontextualize something. We start with this parable, and then he immediately Once he's built up that small world of the fish in water, he steps outside that world and says, hey, look around, we're actually just in a speech. This is just a convention of the genre. And then he says, well, please don't say that I'm going to be the wise older fish. And my response to that is, well, why not? You're in the position of it and this is your chance to be. We want to know your wisdom. And there's something in accepting the student-teacher dynamic, the wise, older, young, ignorant dynamic, even though we know that it doesn't have to be this way or always, it's strange that we are in this situation. And then he says, the fact is that in the day-to-day trenches of, a, of adult existence, why is he using this word trenches? Is life a war? Banal platitudes can have a life or death importance. Now here, in this one sentence, he shows both his brilliancy and his downfall banal platitudes can have a life-or-death importance. The mundane, the clichés, the simple parables can be extremely significant, tremendously important. And he even goes as far as to show how. He does bring meaning into the story, but somehow he uses that as a way to reinforce his pluralist meme and his postmodern value structure, which is that if I can put any meaning into it, it can have any meaning. Let's move on. Of course, the main requirement of speeches like this is that I'm supposed to talk about your liberal arts education's meaning, to try to explain why the degree you are about to receive has actual human value instead of just a material payoff. So let's talk about the single most pervasive cliché in the commencement speech genre, which is that a liberal arts education is not so much about filling you up with knowledge as it is about teaching you how to think. If you're like me as a student, you've never liked hearing this, and you tend to feel a bit insulted by the claim that you needed anybody to teach you how to think, since the fact that you even got admitted to a college this good seems like proof that you already know how to think. But I'm going to posit to you that the liberal arts cliché turns out not to be insulting at all, because the really significant education in thinking that we're supposed to get in a place like this isn't really about the capacity to think but rather about the choice of what to think about. Your total freedom of choice regarding what to think about seems too obvious to waste time discussing. I'd ask you to think about fish and water. And to bracket for just a few minutes your skepticism about the value of the totally obvious. So here again, he's pointing out a cliché and pointing that and, and expressing that it's possible to bring meaning to it and to say there's a reason for cliches. And yet he doesn't go so far as to bring a positive meaning into it himself. And this whole thing of the distinction between how to think and choosing what to think, that's a dead end. And this is really why I can imagine that David Foster Wallace had a lot of anguish in his mind. His anguish, his, his intellect was a source of pain for him. Because controlling your thoughts is a surefire way to go insane. What you resist persists. And really the trick is to let your thoughts go. It's to not be pushing this clinginess to them. And I don't think he got that. I don't think this distinction he made between how to think and what to think and choosing to think and these little philosophical hair splittings, they don't go as deep as the structure of thought and they don't get as far as the being they don't step outside of thought enough and as we'll see as we continue through this speech he didn't know about meditation he didn't know about awareness techniques and he didn't know about the witness which is beyond thoughts and the witness that allows thoughts is really the that that's the actual way to choose how you think. To choose to let your thoughts go, that's the secret to choosing your thoughts. That's the only way that skill can be developed. But he doesn't point that out. He missed it. He then goes on to tell another little didactic story about the two guys in the bar and He's saying they're they're arguing about whether God exists or not. And one guy says, Oh, I got caught in this blizzard and I prayed to God. And then and and the, the the theist, the man who does believe in God, is saying, Well, now you're here, you got saved, so you should believe in God. And he says, Well, no, some people just came along and told me how to get back to camp. And this is just the classic postmodern dilemma, which is I have my story, I have my perspective, and you have your story. How do we make them fit? And this is what killed David Foster Wallace postmodernism. He couldn't resolve this. He was a victim of the green meme. He didn't understand developmental psychology. He didn't have enough of a broader perspective, of the mechanics of thought, of value structures. Now, when you have value structures that move through a developmental psychology pattern or ladder or picture or map, there are waves, there are sections of value structures. And this postmodern thing of, here's this, thing that is this guy has been in this blizzard and he's been saved somehow because people came back came through the snow and showed him the way back to camp and they they're now in the bar these two guys arguing about whether god exists and whether this significant moment this event what meaning should it have to it what words should be ascribed to it and this is the postmodern it's just one postmodern value structure it's the postmodern dilemma it's well it's the postmodern dilemma but it's also the the fruit of postmodernism which is that i have my perspective and you you have yours that in itself is a big realization respecting each other as different is a foundational extraordinary virtue and i just say virtue for want of a better word but it's an important value it's an important part it's a, it's an important thing to be aware of but david foster wallace was aware of it and didn't know how to go beyond it and so it killed him and he's talking about meaning and then he goes on to use this term about the default mode and this thing of the default mode indicates that he doesn't understand what value structures are because he says now there's there's a thing to be distinguished between the default mode of the 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 brain which is following brain waves on an EEG machine and the the default mode or the default, structure that he's talking about here. When he says default structure, he means belief sphere or belief, the the point in your belief, where you are at with your beliefs. And he says it just comes from your culture or from inside you. But he doesn't account for how people have different belief structures. He doesn't go into that depth. He doesn't have a wide enough range of saying, well, you believe this and I believe this. That's two people. Now, what do a hundred people believe? What do a thousand people believe? What do 50,000 people believe? And not only in just one country or continent or culture, but across multiple continents, across multiple cultures. Then we get into seeing the pattern. Then we get into seeing the forest with all the trees. The problem is that he's coming at the postmodern meme and still thinking it's you and me. It's one-on-one. And a deeper understanding of developmental psychology would have helped him so much with that. He then goes on to say, Here is just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. the realest, most vivid and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It is our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you, to the left or the right of you, on your TV, on your monitor, and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but you are your own immediate... (laughs) by sorry, we say to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent and real. end quote. Now this is the dilemma, which is the paradox or the duality between personal, and impersonal. And there is a very simple meditation technique which can experientially bring someone to the path of collapsing the personal and the impersonal. And David Foster Wallace clearly didn't know about it. In this section of the speech, He has used an absolute without realizing that that absolute can collapse. An absolute, which is that you are the center of the universe, that's the absolute I'm talking about. This is just the edge of a belief. Now, the simple meditation practice is self-inquiry. And this Zen koan, who are you, or who am I, which you repeat over and over and you experientially go into, helps you to find the edge of where you draw this boundary between me and something else, me and the rest of the world. And he's right. He's correct in saying that you are the absolute center of the universe. But he doesn't go deeper into this idea of the self. When we say you, what does that mean? Now, if David Foster Wallace could have read a book like No Boundary by Ken Wilber, which was published decades before he made this speech, and if he could have read it and absorbed it, it would have vastly expanded what he said here. He wouldn't have been able to say this. What he's saying here about you being the center of the universe and everything being in relation to you and not having a deeper, not only intellectual framework of how that is a path and an expanding definition, but also an experiential sense of it, then he... he, he would have been a lot better off. And it doesn't have to be. I mean, I bring up Ken Wilber because that's just the person I learned this from. There are many people who are aware of this. This is not a it's not a secret that the boundary between self and other is flexible or or movable, and it depends on where you are at with your consciousness. So, I mean, that that reminds me again that it's it's easy for us to... I mean, I don't mean to talk down to him or point out his mistakes. I don't want that to be... It's like, it's easier for us to do an analysis on it because we have the knowledge here now. So, it's... it's I by no means put myself above David Foster Wallace in any way because you know this is a tangible word these are tangible words that were written 15 years ago and we ha- we have the ability to do the deep analysis on it so really this is just my impression and what what i have got out of it and that needs to be something that i come back to i need to speak my own truth as they would say in the postmodern meme so he goes on to say, quote, Please don't worry that I'm getting ready to lecture you about compassion or other directedness or the so called virtues. This is not a matter of virtue. It's a matter of my choosing to do the work of somehow altering or getting free of my natural, hardwired default setting, which is to be deeply and literally self centered and to see and interpret everything through the lens of self. People who can adjust their natural default setting this way, are often described as being well-adjusted, which I suggest to you is not an accidental term. So when he says, I'm lecturing about, lecturing you about compassion or other directedness or the so-called virtues, why does he say so-called virtues? I'd want to know from David Foster Wallace if there are such things as virtues. What are your not-so-called virtues? Instead of saying so-called virtues and saying that you're not talking about not-virtues, why aren't you talking about virtues? And this gets at the something which is the, the value structures. And if he could see the difference in value structures, he wouldn't have fallen for the postmodern meme. He wouldn't have fallen for this thing that everyone has their own opinion. And he would have seen that he uses this term hardwired default setting. Well, what he's doing there, he's actually mistaken. He's mistaken the point which someone is at with their progress through a value structure or value spheres or perspectives, multiple perspectives, he's de- he's mistaked that for how someone is. So he's missing the scale. He's missing the the timeline. So if we were to plot out someone's values, someone's so-called virtues, or painted a picture of their hardwired default setting at different times in their life, let's say... 5-year-old, 10-year-old, 15-year-old, 20-year-old. Every five years, we ask this person, what are your values? What are your virtues? And from that, we can surmise what their default setting is. We would have seen that there's a difference. There's an arc. There's a process. There's a change. And I don't think David Foster Wallace got that. Now, he did have the ability to take other perspectives. He could listen to someone and understand where they're coming from. How could you not with someone with such an extraordinary ability to tell stories? It's not like he's sitting in his own room imagining these stories. These stories that he tells, these narratives, they come from real life. And many of them are from his real life. Like he actually did play tennis. But he must have had an immense ability to understand other people's perspectives. Which is a key component. It's a key ability of the green meme. Of the pluralist meme. He continues... Probably the most dangerous thing about an academic education, at least in my own case, is that it enables my tendency to over-intellectualize stuff, to get lost in abstract argument inside my head, instead of simply paying attention to what is going on right in front of me. Paying attention to what is going on inside me. Now this is the moment where he has it right in front of his nose But he misses it and he cannot be let off the hook easily because it's like it's like this. It's like saying, say you walk into a room and you fart and you say, oh, everybody, I just farted. Sorry, I admit to it. Well, admitting to it doesn't excuse you from the fact that we all have to smell your fart now. And I used to have this problem when I was a kid because I would get into trouble. I would do something naughty, but I was too honest not to lie. So I'd make some mischief, get into trouble, and then I'd admit to it. And of, of course, all the while I was thinking, I, I by admitting to it, whoever was getting me in trouble would say, Wow, you're so honest. That's okay. Thank you for being honest. Oh, good on you for fessing up to it. And of course I got my ass kicked. (laughs) That was my childhood anyway. But here, where he's saying that he can over-intellectualize things and get lost in abstract argument inside his head instead of paying attention to what is going on right in front of him and what is going on inside of him, because he can illustrate that well, it's almost like he he can't see the point because he can paint the picture so well. It's like he's... Imagine doing a painting where the, the painter is more absorbed in the painting rather than what is... And really, maybe this is something... This says something deeper about art. And there's a connection between the, the mystic or... Perception of reality and art. Because art is a representation. It's always a smaller piece from one angle. So the painter is, is absorbed in their painting. They get more from the painting than they do the actual thing, the subject. And he knows this. He says he should be able to pay attention he should be able to see what's going on inside of him. These are meditative, this is the pull, this is the instinct that he had towards meditation. He continues, quote, As I'm sure you guys know by now, it is extremely difficult to stay alert and attentive instead of getting hypnotized by the constant monologue inside your head. Maybe happening right now. Twenty years after my own graduation, I have come gradually to understand that the liberal arts cliche about teaching you how to think is actually shorthand for a much deeper, more serious idea. Learning how to think really means learning how to exercise some control over how and what you think. It means being conscious and aware enough to choose what you pay attention to and to choose how you construct meaning. From experience, because if you cannot exercise this kind of con- this kind of choice in adult life, you will be totally host. It says host on this transcript, but I think it means lost. Think of the old cliche about the mind being an excellent servant but a terrible master. Now there's already so much. It's such a dense talk. He packs so much in that it's dazzling. It's like, where do I begin to pull that apart? When he's saying it's extremely difficult to stay alert and attentive, well, that's your initial step into meditation. It's not difficult to pay alert, to pay attention and to be alert, rather, sorry. It's very easy if you've developed that skill through meditation. And how to think... And he comes also back to this thing of a cliché having a deeper meaning, a shorthand for a more serious idea, which is how to control your thoughts. And I've already said that that's a mistake. Being conscious and aware enough. Now, here he uses this word. This is an important word. He says conscious and aware. Now, awareness is a higher value. Awareness is really a thing that skewers the entire spectrum of the, the value spheres. It goes through all levels on your developmental psychology. Awareness is another one of these crystals, these gems, which he's got dangling in front of his nose, but he can't cash in on. And then he goes on to this old cliché about the mind being an excellent servant, but a terrible master. Now, this is your chance, David Foster Wallace, to use your brilliant speech, your words, to say, well, you acknowledge that it's a cliché. We agree with you that it's a cliché. We also acknowledge that there are clichés for a reason. We also acknowledge that any meaning can be ascribed to it, and there's a whole host of opportunities of what the significance of this phrase, the mind being an excellent servant but a terrible master could be, tell us, wise old fish. This is the speech on a significant occasion where you can set things straight. Speak your being, show us your light. And he goes on to say that it's not the least bit coincidental that adults who commit suicide with firearms almost always shoot themselves in the head. End quote. Why are you being so bleak, David Foster Wallace? And how did he die? How did this David Foster Wallace die? Well, he hung himself. That's not what killed him. The postmodern meme killed him. His inability to see... What was right in front of his face killed him. His dazzling intellect killed him. But he hung himself. And hanging yourself by the neck to release the weight of your head on your shoulders is not that far from, removed from shooting yourself in the head. And I wonder where he was at when the, when he gave this speech. It's really at this point in the speech when he's talking about suicide and he's failed to bring a positive meaning to the clichés that he's so beautifully illustrated that you would have to say, well, are you okay? Can someone, can someone give this man a cup of tea and start counselling him? Well, I think he's beyond counselling because of his brilliancy. But this, this says something. He then goes on to talk about the comfortable prosperous respectable adult life and what it's like to be dead unconscious a slave to your head and he talks about the day in day out and how they are uh, large parts of american adult life which is monotonous boring routine, petty frustration. And he ventures off into this story about getting up in the morning, going to work, working hard, and then you want to come home and relax. But then you can't go to bed because you have no food in the fridge, so you go to the supermarket. And it's a terrible thing. He has this he has this this is where his flower is coming out but it's coming out wrong because he illustrates the story you're really there and it flows so beautifully you actually go to the supermarket with him you see the people around you get the feeling of what he feels you become frustrated the lady at the work, working at the register whose overworked job And the checkout and the have a nice day in a voice that is the voice of absolute death, he says. And you have your creepy bags and you're driving through this traffic with these selfish, disgusting hummers, these oil-guzzling cars which are ruining the ozone layer, ruining the planet, the climate. It's, It's so real. And it's a beautiful way that it flows through. It's this journey. It's a micro... It's like this miniature novel, all in just a few paragraphs. And you go so far with it. There's so many ups and downs. There's so many... It's such an alive world. And yet he's using it to paint a bleak picture. It's nihilism. And it's nihilism because his only solution to this so-called bleak outlook that he's in, his only answer to it is that someone might have it worse than you. Maybe they're a better person, but you can't see it. Maybe they're driving a big oil-guzzling car because they need to, because their psychiatrist told them to, because they had a crash and all the other examples, and all the other details that he has. And that is nihilism. That is that things are bad, but everything is okay because others have it worse. And he misses completely the people who have it better. He can't imagine the people who are in... Well, well, well here's the scary thing. He gets so close... After he's painted this picture of how terrible it is to go to the supermarket and how other people might have it worse, he gets so close because he says, quote, If you really learn how to pay attention, then you will know there are other options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell type situation as not only the meaningful but sacred, on fire, with the same force that made the stars. Love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. There is a whisper of hope. There is a small glimmering of a light. But I think these words don't mean anything to David Foster Wallace. This force that made the stars. Love, fellowship. These are deep virtues. These are high values. And he gives us the answer. He says, if you really learn how to pay attention. It comes back to meditation. And I don't think he knew how to. I really don't think he knew how to pay attention. I think his intellect distracted him. Because right after he's had this tiny spark, he, he puts it out. Because he says, quote, not that that mystical stuff is necessarily true. End quote. He's immediately bringing, building something, defining something by what it's not. Here's a picture of something, and here's how it's not that. Here's what it's not. If you're always going around defining things, by what they're not, you're a nihilist, and I shouldn't say that with outrage. I should say I should say it with a sadness. It's a it's a well, well don't tell me how I should or shouldn't feel. It's a if I really feel into David Foster Wallace, it's it's a tragedy. It's it's shocking that it could be so close. Right in front of his nose, and yet he doesn't get it. He then goes on to talk about this thing of everybody worships. And this gets back to the value sphere. He's talking about Allah or Yahweh, or the Four Noble Truths, or God, or money, or good looks, or intellect even. Now, he doesn't entirely distinguish between the difference of intellect... And how smart people think of you. He also talks about power. And he says, quote, Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, end quote. Now he doesn't distinguish here. The difference between intellect and being seen as smart. Self image in the eyes of others, your public image, is one thing, and your relationship to your mind is another. Within these two, these six, seven words of worship your intellect and being seen as smart. There's an important difference there. Because what's the point of the intellect? I mean, he has this brilliant mind. He has this incredible way with words. This is a genius ability to illustrate things. You would think that his inner world is full of magic. It's full of all sorts of things. It's full of adventures. It's full of color. It's full of poetry. It's full of, whoa, you know, he is over there. And that's not the feeling you get. If you, if you read a book and it fills you with that, then that's how you tell people about it. That's what you say about it. Now, I don't think there's many people. Usually when we talk about David Foster Walls, we say, wow, this is heavy, or this is serious, or that's really amazing stuff, or that's complicated, insightful cultural commentary. There's no playfulness, it's not like it's not like a book where you go, "Whoa, this filled me with something. Whoa, this is such a joy. You've got to read this. This is amazing. Now maybe that sort of emotive language is reserved more for fiction rather than for literature. Maybe literature always has to be serious. I don't know. But he didn't distinguish the real point of the intellect and these inner world stories, which is to fill you with joy, to enrich your inner world. And he doesn't distinguish between that and being seen as smart. When he's talking about worship, which is the Worship you gradually slip into, he says. He doesn't understand that this idea of worship is actually just a value structure. And just like we take this default setting and plot it along hundreds and thousands of people across time and across cultures, we can do the same with worship. If we plot that across time and cultures and we put it into any of the developmental structures, whether it's a spiral dynamic structure, or a love-joy structure, or a Gene Gebser structure, or any of the integral theory structures, then he would have seen that. He would have seen that this thing of the... It's just another arrow in the direction of developmental psychology, which he didn't get, which is this idea of worshipping. What you worship, if we say there's a question of what do you worship, then that is just a, it's one way of gauging where your value structure is and what your value structure is made of. And there are multiple answers to that which can be plucked out and checked. There's another thing that doesn't come across if you just read the transcript of this speech. There's another thing that's happening in the audience as he's delivering it. So if you listen to the audio of it, you can get a sense of this, but what's happening is this odd thing where the audience is laughing. He gets to the ends of these points, or he makes these punchlines, or they appear as punchlines because everyone laughs after them, and it's rather curious because, I mean, what's the, what's the most accurate emotional response to what he's saying? And if I ask myself that, I would say, well, it's bleak, it's sadness, it's nihilism. You're talking about suicide. You're talking about monotony. You're talking about the, the, the hopelessness that you can't put these world perspectives and other people's opinions together. You can't How to say that, how you don't, you can't, uh, you can't account for these different value spheres. And if someone was sitting in that audience hearing this, and especially with the tone of voice, the man, the being that this is coming from, it's sad. It's so sad. And yet somehow the audience is laughing. Now, what's going on there is that there's always. We need to understand something about humor and comedy. Comedy and tragedy, they share a. They're two sides of the same coin. And I've talked about this before, and I'm going to talk about it again. And I'm going to be talking about it many times in many different ways because comedy, really, humor, the joke, is the key to existence. We're all part of a cosmic joke. Have you heard this? Life is a joke. Do you know what that means? And basically, humor is this thing of you think, you, you have this moment where you think everything's gone wrong and actually it turns out to be okay. Or it can be the other way around. You think everything's gone right? And yet actually it goes wrong. And that's if you say there's this one of the comedy movie structures is what's called a comedy of errors. So you have this character in this perfectly normal situation and something goes wrong. And then another thing goes wrong. And then another thing, and it just strings out into this plot where everything's going wrong and it's very funny to watch. Now it's different in in a tragedy or a thriller in that in the tragedy of the thriller, but you, you, you want to feel that it's gone wrong and it and it and it shouldn't have gone wrong. Whereas in the comedy of areas it should have gone right. And you can feel how it could have gone right. Now a comedian's job is to stand up on stage and basically by saying what is going wrong, just by having them say it and acknowledge it, makes it funny. Because if he's okay to... If the comedian, he or she, is okay to stand up on stage and just talk about it frankly, then obviously it's okay. That's an indication that there's no problem with it. And if a comedian stays relaxed and they're actually okay with it... They can say some really terrible things. They can turn the darkest tragedies into something funny. And really, if you find a deep, dark tragedy in something normal, in something simple, then that can be very funny as well. And the moment it goes wrong for a comedian, well, a, co- a comedian's job is not to. I mean, I mean, these comedians, like think of these big shot. Comedians like Louis C.K. or uh, Ricky Gervais—they're up there on stage making a fool out of themselves, but then they get in their sports car or their private jet and go off to their multi-million-dollar movie deal. So we know it's their job; it's their in in their sense to say to to be—they have the skill, the position in their life to be able to say these funny things and to make a joke out of things. But the moment it goes wrong for a comedian is when they say something and it's not a joke and someone does take it seriously. And that happens at different points. That's happened for many people in their, in their comedy careers. And, of course, the best comedians turn it into a joke and they embrace it and they accept it. But here, with David Foster Wallace, it appears like the opposite is happening. Because when there's this feeling of like the nervous laugh that's happening in this audience, I mean, you could call it a nervous laugh and some people might be taking it. I mean, how people are taking it is another story. But this nervous laugh in the David Foster Wallace speech is that you have this tragic, tragic, sad feeling and there needs to be a reversal. It's like the laughter is a relief So he keeps saying these things and people burst out laughing when really they should burst out into tears. And David Foster Wallace is not a comedian. He did not understand that life is a joke. We're all part of the cosmic joke. Now can you get that the tragedy of existence, that is the ultimate joke. The pain of existence, the darkness of eternity, how wrong it all feels, how bad everything is, not just for humanity, for for the entirety of the cosmos. That can be flipped, just like with the click of the fingers and a swish of the hand, into a ah, doesn't matter, it's a joke. You think it's all going to go wrong and there's all this tension of make sure everything's right, make sure everything's right. We don't want to die. We need to survive. Things need to be the way they need to be. What a tragedy it it would be if it all ends. But if it were to end, there'd be nothing left to do but laugh. And it's possible to reach that. It's It's possible to bridge your experience of existence with your laughter, with your humor. And it's possible to put your joke next to your existential experiences. Now that's very different to a nervous laugh. And the difference is how someone feels about it. If someone has a tragedy within them, and they really are feeling the tragedy, it's not a joke for that person. It really is a tragedy, as it was for David Foster Wallace. And that's why there are these nervous laughs all throughout this speech. So, back to where we were going through this. He was talking about the importance of discipline and awareness, and these so-called real worlds and these so-called men and money. Well, he, he's talking about these value structures and worshipping the intellect and he, he's sort of just painting this bleak picture. And yet he says, the really important kind of freedom. So now he's talking about freedom. And, and freedom, it's another one of these words like awareness or love. It seems to be this this kindling spark of hope. And if if someone comes across this word in their speech, you know, if, if someone's talking, it's a brilliant intellect like David Foster Wallace, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about freedom, it's like, whoa, the word freedom should ring a bell. The word freedom is pay attention. What is your deep insight into the nature of freedom? And he says, quote, The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, unsexy ways every day. Wow. What an insight. That is so true. Attention, awareness, discipline, sacrifice, dedication, caring for others. This is the important kind of freedom. Thank you, David Foster Wallace. If only you could believe that for yourself. This is an amazing thing to hear about freedom. He continues That is real freedom. That is being educated and understanding how to think. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. End quote. Did he opt for the alternative? Is that what happened to him? He had this gnawing sense of having had lost something infinite. And in some ways, you could say that David Foster Wallace had an infinite mind. His intellect, his brilliancy really was beyond us common folk and even the, the higher educated people of his day. Did he get the sense that he lost it? Did he get the sense that it didn't give him what it should have, what it could have, which I know it could have? And why is that? How could he know about attention and awareness and discipline and sacrificing for other people and for caring for others and to know how important it is. The the alternative is unconsciousness. He's putting so much meaning into this. It's such a dramatic picture. This is a high-stakes game. This is life and death. This is freedom or imprisonment he's talking about. And yet he goes on to say, quote, I know that this stuff probably doesn't sound fun and breezy or grandly inspirational the way a commencement speech is supposed to sound, end quote. Why is he he changing the context again? This is an echo of what happened in the front when he was talking about the two fish in the water and he sets up this story and then he expands the context to make it bigger and to remind us that we're in the middle of a speech which somehow diminishes what he just said, why can't he just stay in the story? Why does he have to keep expanding to this thing of the commencement speech? Why does he have to keep putting it down and saying it isn't fun or breezy? Well, if he'd said it in a different tone of voice, it might have sounded fun and breezy. It might have been an insight which had weight to it, if he'd believed it, if it was a light to him. And now he comes to the big fish. And he brings out the real thing. We've talked about love. We've talked about freedom. We've talked about awareness. Now he comes to it. This is the climax of the show. This is where he brings us into the depth of it. Now, if you've brought us in and out of multiple contexts, you've built things up and built things down, you've shown... he's. Up until this point in the speech, he's showed us brilliantly how he can, in a few sentences, make something extremely amazingly important and then tear it down immediately. And we've been up and down through this process and we're on board with him and we say, Okay, you have the mastery. You can give us something. Now, what do you say? What is the point? What is your point? What is your light? Share your light with us, David Foster Wallace. And he brings out the big guns. Ready for it? Here we go. Strap yourselves in again. I hope you've been strapped in the whole time, but here we go. Quote. What it is, as far as I can see, is the capital T truth with a whole lot of rhetorical niceties stripped away. End quote. Whoa. We're talking about capital T truth. The cold hard truth without the rhetorical niceties. Thank you. But he immediately undermines it. He says, quote, You are, of course, free to think of it whatever you wish. End quote. Why are you saying that? You should be telling us. Don't put it back on me. We're on board with you. Quote. But please don't just dismiss it as some finger-wagging Dr. Laura Sermon. None of this stuff is really about morality or religion or dogma or big fancy questions of life after death. The capital T Truth is about life before death. It is about the real value of a real education, which has almost nothing to do with knowledge and everything to do with simple awareness. Awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us, all the time, that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over again. This is water. This is water. Wow, how important awareness is. How big truth is. And how hidden it is in our immediate plain sight all around us all the time. And how it takes a lifetime to do that. And this really gets to another dimension of meditation, which he didn't get. And that is perception. He keeps having this thing of what you see, what is right in front of you. Now, the way you know what's right in front of you, now, that this gets a bit tricky because we need to distinguish between what is immediate and what is in front of you. Now, I think what would ground him best in this situation and what he's talking about is being immediate and alert and attentive with your perceptions, what's going in with your eyeballs, not with what's going on in the mind. And I think if he had have done meditative practices which would develop the ability to align the attention that you have with the perception that you have, then it would have been a lot easier for him. He wouldn't have been saying that it's unimaginably hard to do this. It wouldn't have felt so hopeless. It wouldn't have felt so difficult And it wouldn't have sounded so bleak when he talked about it. These answers to the tangles of the nihilism of David Foster Wallace, like value structures and meditation and developmental psychology, they don't really go deep enough themselves, and I can see now that I'm doing the exact thing that David Foster Wallace was doing, which was to undermine what I've previously just said a few moments ago, but really the essence of a man's truth or a person's truth, it's what their being emanates It's the thing that's beyond the words. And you get a sense of it if you listen to the tone of voice, but really it's deeper than the tone of voice. To sense someone's essence and to see, does this person have a light shining out of them, into the world? That takes an amount of awareness. Now, is David Foster Wallace a light to the world? Is His being a lesson to us? Is it something we like to go into? Is it something worthwhile? I don't know if I can answer in the affirmative for that because I sit back and I I analyze these issues and these traps and these tricks having dealt with them and worked through them myself. And my way of working through them and going through them has shown me how to overcome them. But I think if you just come to David Foster Wallace on the surface, there's no clear path. It's not like you jump onto his wagon, and if you stay on that wagon long enough, it will take you to a beautiful place. That's really the test of someone's being. It's what's it like to be on their trip. Now, if you read his books, if you read Infinite Jest, it is a trip. It's very colorful. It's an amazing read. Even if you just read part of it, because it's so thick, it's so vast, it's an epic. But where does it take you? Where does it move your being? Where does it touch you? Does it touch you in your intellect? Does it leave you feeling like your value structures are hopeless? Does it leave you with nihilism? And I, I think if you're not aware of these questions and you come to David Foster Wallace, then it doesn't really work. It's not a it's not a ride that ends in a place in, in, a, in a positive place for everyone. And maybe that's why it resonates with so many people. I don't know what the other commentaries are like for David Foster Wallace. I imagine there's some scholarly, very detailed things about the plot. Like, I haven't addressed the plot at all for Infinite Jest. And really, I, I, I've I only just spent most of our time on this this speech, but... I get the feeling that the, the tone of infinite jest and the essence that's coming through is the same in this speech. And I can feel the essence of this man and really the, the essence of someone, when you learn how to spot that, when you feel how to be aware of that and you get that skill and you have it just a little bit, you only need to be with someone for a little bit. We could have gone through half the speech and had half the examples of what he talked about and the structures that they have, and it would have told us enough about where David Foster Wallace was at. It would have told us that he builds things up and breaks things down. He defines things by negative. He doesn't appear to be aware of value structures in a developmental wave sort of form. He only has these little glimmers of light and these truths, these These insights, these positive insights about love and freedom and awareness, they're only little sparks on the edge of him. They're not coming from his core. And really, it's a tragedy because with such a brilliant mind, if he had have searched more sincerely, he could have easily understood these things he could have easily opened up if only there was someone who could talk to David Foster Wallace about meditation. Now, that's not to say he wasn't aware of meditation in the sense that he did. Of course, he knew that meditation exists. I'm sure he was aware of Buddhism, of Christianity, and even of many psychological things. He may even have a degree in psychology. I don't know. But having the degree, having the intellect, and, and it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be enough for someone to sit down and say, Mr. David Foster Wallace, I'd like to tell you about meditation. How would that conversation take place? What sort of person would he listen to? What sort of illustration would... Would someone be able to conspire and create that would make meditation significant enough and meaningful enough that it would become of interest to David Foster Wallace? Someone who spent all their life writing about meaning and thinking about meaning and falling for the meaning of multiple worldviews the pluralist meme, that that sort of person, it's, it's impossible to give them something meaningful. Now, if you say, oh, it's just your perspective, oh, you can make any meaning out of anything, you can ascribe any significance to any event, two people are going to have the same significance to the single event, well, that person is really lost. That person is in a dark way. And of of course, the solution always is meditation and transcendence and understanding that the green meme, the pluralist meme, the postmodern meme, which is where more and more people are going into in our global culture today, the solution to it is transcendence. It's moving over into second-tier thinking. It's not stage green, it's stage yellow on spiral dynamics. It's multi dimensional thinking. It's using multiple forms of structures, multiple cognitive shapes, and also being able to step off the ladder, being able to let go, and knowing the difference between structure and content, intellect and experience. Awareness and story. And it really is such a tragedy that someone so brilliant could miss this. He really was brilliant. Massive mind. And the mind is something to be celebrated. The intellect, these stories, that is something to be celebrated. And it will be a long time before we find someone as brilliant as David Foster Wallace. So, I think that brings us just about to the end. I feel like I've splurted my piece. I I, I just want to say that you can get... If you listen to all the parts of what I'm saying, you can get a sense of how conflicted I am about... Like, I want to say I admire the man, but I can't say that. I want to say I feel... I feel in awe of the man, but I I can't even say that I I can only admire a part of him, and it's really if I really am honest about what I feel, it's that I feel like it's a tragedy. It's a sadness. How could someone miss out? And in in is that my is that my compassion? I don't know if compassion is it's it's not compassion. I think compassion in this part of the conversation just roils the water. It just makes things more muddy. And I don't know if he really understood compassion. He he understood that compassion is a very important thing, but didn't go far enough to really sink to the rock bottom of that meaning. He didn't have things go full circle. He didn't find his rock bottom. So I, I don't know how to say, in just a few words, how I feel about the man. So... I guess that's why (laughs) we've been talking about him all this time. So that sums up how I feel. And the comedy and the cosmic joke will come up again in conversation. And I don't know if I can recommend David Foster Wallace and his books. Because, well, for me to go back and actually read Infinite Jest, I think I would have to have a lot of spare time on my hands. It's a really thick book. (laughs) Who knows? Maybe one day, maybe not. But I think for now we've said enough. So I'll leave you with a few moments of silence. If you can, close your eyes and just digest what we've said and come back to being quiet and remember your meditation. And that's all I have to say for now.